Hello, my name is Vera Rusinova. I teach public international law at the National Research University High School of Economics in Moscow. Today I'm going to talk about human rights in armed conflicts, and I'm going to consider these issues in light of relationship between two branches of public international law, international humanitarian law and international human rights law. In paragraph 106 of the advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the construction of a wall in the occupied Palestinian territory, the International Court of Justice acknowledged that application of the international human rights law does not cease in times of armed conflicts. Moreover, this court highlighted that there exist three possible situations describing the relationship between these two branches of public international law. Some rights may be exclusively matters of international humanitarian law. Others may be exclusively matters of international human rights law. Yet others may, may fall under the application of both branches of international law. However, the issues related to the process of simultaneous application of the norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law mostly remain outside the framework of this advisory opinion. Today, I want you to glimpse exactly into this sphere of simultaneous application of these norms. Let us try out the added value of applicability of international human rights law in armed conflicts. What does it bring in comparison to exclusive application of international humanitarian law? These issues arise in all armed conflicts. Moreover, a mere technical possibility of military application of autonomous weapons as well as artificial intelligence brings up not only ethical challenges and problems of compatibility with principles of distinction and humanity. It also raises issues concerning algorithmization of applicable rules. Thus, a traditional question on which norms govern whatever situation in armed conflicts is nowadays uh, supplemented by another one, whether these norms are able to be translated into the language of the computer cloud. A position of the main United Nations bodies, including the International Court of Justice, the case law of international, both universal and regional human rights bodies, and the doctrine allows to track changes in the assessment of the relationship between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. Namely, a competitive approach consisting in choice of international humanitarian law as lex specialis branch, pathway to complementary one. Moreover, a legal analysis shifted from the level of branches of international law to the level of norms of these branches of international law. But how intensive is a mutual um, application and uh, interrelation between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law? Do international humanitarian law and international human rights law still represent two absolutely separate, uh, separate legal regimes that from time to time are applied together? Or is there an integration between some norms of these branches of international law going on? In order to address these issues, uh, we should firstly determine whether both norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law uh, do have capacity for this integration. First, a possibility of integration comes from an ability of the norms of international humanitarian law to serve as a limit for restriction of human rights. 
a theoretical construction that helps to apply international human rights law provisions in this respect is a concept of subjective public rights. Thus, norms, I mean, prohibitions and obligations of international humanitarian law along with uh, provisions of international criminal law and the international humanitarian law itself are able to participate and form in um, defining the limits um, on below which human rights cannot be restricted. Second, international customs as one of the main sources of public international law are formed outside the division of norms of public international law into branches. So sometimes these division of norms um, are a little bit artificial and sometimes a little bit scholastic. A confirmation of this can be found in the results of a study conducted under the auspices of the International Committee of the Red Cross um, on customary international humanitarian law. So in this study we can find out that a significant number of international customs are based on state practice and opinion juris, uh, which actually can be qualified as belonging to both branches of public international law, international humanitarian law, and international human rights law. Third, the integration potential between international humanitarian law and international human rights law also follows from the current factual situation. When victims of armed conflicts started to seek justice in different international bodies which primary competence and responsibility was to apply human rights and not international humanitarian law. Uh, frankly speaking, none of these international judicial and quasi-judicial bodies um, rejected such applications. Let's take the European Court of Human Rights as an example. Now, nowadays, its praxis reflects almost all armed conflicts with participation of the state parties to the Convention uh, for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms. So the list, this list consists of so-called Turkish, Chechen, Iraqi, South Ossetian, and Ukrainian cases. Moreover, in 2018, this court communicated an application to the German government, and this application concerned an armed up, um, conflict in Afghanistan. Thus, the norms of international humanitarian law are even forced to be applied through the prism, through the light of international human rights law. All these human rights bodies use norms of international humanitarian law both implicitly and explicitly for interpretation of the provisions of international uh, human rights law. Probably the only one exception can be found in practice of the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, which decided that it is possible for this commission to apply norms of international humanitarian law directly. But this is, let's say, an exception. Thus, the principle of systemic um, integration codified in paragraph 3c of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties um, is implemented thereby in practice. However, all arguments about the integration capacity of norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law make sense only when the formation of common legal rules results in something new when it changes the content of legal regulation in comparison to the situation when this content would be reduced to the norms of international humanitarian law exclusively. In this regard, let's consider how this integration potential could have been realized theoretically and 
um, which paths were actually taken by the international and national courts in practice. I'll proceed with three examples. So let me start with the most complicated case and consider negative obligations arising from the right to life. An integrated test of the lawfulness of the deprivation of life in armed conflicts um, could consist of application of provisions of international humanitarian law as a maximum limit for restriction of human rights, alongside with application of principles of strict uh, necessity um, and proportionality arising from the international human rights law. But these uh, principles, I mean principle of uh, absolute necessity and strict proportionality in armed conflicts should be applied in relation to different situations, so in relation to different purposes. And these purposes during an armed conflict cannot, uh, can, uh, can be, for instance, uh, quelling of a riot or an insurrection, if we are speaking about hostilities, about combat situation, or uh, we can speak about such purposes as stopping unlawful violence in respect of other lives or arresting of an individual, which is actually another story. It follows from the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights, and I can refer you in this respect to the cases against Turkey like Gül and Agül, and cases against uh, Russia like Esaiva, Esaiva and others, um, Esmohambetov and others, and Hatseva and others. In these cases, the European Court of Human Rights um, did differentiate situations separating real battles, real hostilities, from operations aimed at search for members of armed groups, for example. By distinguishing this situation, the court took into consideration many circumstances, among which the level of training and equipment of the parties to the conflict, the number and the intensity of the use of force. The approach taken by this court is neither a choice between a law enforcement and a military paradigm. Uh, furthermore, it is not an application of lex specialis rule. This is the application of the criteria of absolute necessity and strict proportionality in respect of different purposes, and it is of a prime importance in the so-called gray zones. This approach has been applied not only by the European Court of Human Rights. The United Nations Human Rights Committee, in its concluding observations on the reports of Israel in 2003 and 2010, um, in relation to the practice of the so-called targeted killings, recommended that before resorting to the use of force, uh, all measures to arrest a person who is suspected of being in the process of committing acts of terror must be exhausted. In the targeted killing ca case uh, in 2006, the Supreme Court of Israel in its famous uh, decision also insisted on application of the lesser harm method to those situations. Um, it cannot be contested that this approach is a clear step towards the application of an integrated te test to cases of the deprivation of life in armed conflicts. Although we must bear in mind that targeted killings analyzed in these cases, this practice, have been assessed in the framework of occupation. The second example of integration between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law uh, relates to prohibition of arbitrary deprivation of liberty in armed conflicts. This prohibition is codified by different international human rights treaties, while the international humanitarian law does contain the right to use the internment, 
Internment disease is a specific um, non-punitive detention measure for security reason, which can last until um, uh, activity of a person concerned uh, does not pose serious threat to the party to the conflict. The human rights treaties, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the American Convention on Human Rights, and the African Charter on Peoples and Human Rights, um, set forth a general prohibition of arbitrary deprivation of liberty without setting forth um, a list of grounds for a lawful detention. By contrast, paragraph 1 of Article 5 of the Convention for Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms um, does contain such a list. It is exhaustive and it does not provide internment. Though Article 15 of this convention allows to make derogations from this um, article. But to um, uh, be frankly, the state practice shows that state parties to this convention uh, do not make use of this opportunity, even if they use internment in armed conflicts. As a result, such a firm uh, statutory concept causes a problem. By providing no latitude, it renders the internment in both international and non-international armed conflicts um, to be unlawful under the Convention, provided that a state concerned uh, did not make a derogation from Article 5. It was exactly the logic of the European Court of Human Rights when it decided upon the cases of Algeria versus the United Kingdom in 2011. However, this position proved to be short-lived. In 2014, in uh, the Hassan versus the United Kingdom case, the European Court of Human Rights, relying on systemic interpretation of convention in light of international humanitarian law provisions, acknowledged lawfulness of the internment even in uh, the absence of a derogation from Article 5. It seems, however, that integration between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law could be found not through the prism of existence or absence of the internment among the list of uh, grounds for a lawful detention, but through application of a criterion of lawfulness. The internment is indeed thoroughly regulated in case of international armed conflicts. But it lacks such regulation in non-international armed conflicts. The second additional protocol in Article 5 and 6 only refers to interned persons. It, it is obviously not enough to meet the requirement of lawfulness. Thus, a procedure of internment needs to be additionally regulated by legal acts, um, either at national or at international level. A comparable logic permeates the Abtali Hamid al-Bahid and Sardar Mohammed versus Ministry of Defense judgment rendered in 2017 by the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. In this case, the court opined that the international humanitarian law provisions um, applicable in non-international armed conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan were not enough to provide legal basis for internment. The third example of integration between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law um, can be tracked um, in a case of positive obligations uh, concerning application of right to life in armed conflict. Probably this case and this example is not as problematic as my previous two. 
the international human rights law can serve um, for tailoring and even enlarging the scope of duties on precautionary measures provided by international humanitarian law. There are already a number of such results in practice of different human rights bodies. For instance, in Isaiva versus Russia case, the European Court of Human Rights turned on an obligation to make um, effective advance warning of attack, which may affect the civil civilian population on the opposite side of an armed conflict, provided that this party to the conflict was aware of a military operation. Another example from the practice of this court um, is a case um, when the European Court of Human Rights insisted that a party to the conflict, governmental party to the conflict, should put in practice and set forth appropriate legal and administrative framework regulating the use of force and firearms in armed conflicts. Nevertheless, optimism about strengthening of legal protection in armed conflicts can be rendered premature without assessment of the limits of the mutual applicability of international humanitarian law and international human rights law provision. In this context, two key restrictions of the scope of international human rights law are crucial, and I'm speaking about territorial and personal scope of application of this branch of law. The first question is, whether the state remains bound by the core international human rights treaties in case when it's using force extraterritorially, uh, but is not occupying the territory of another state. According to the wording of the main international and regional human rights treaties and their interpretation, in answering of this question, uh, what is crucial is the notion of um, jurisdiction. But the approaches to construction of this term uh, sharply diverge. The UN Human Rights Committee, for instance, adheres to a wide approach to interpretation of this term. And uh, should we take, for instance, the Lopez Burgess versus Uruguay's case, um, the UN Human Rights Committee stated that what is important is the relationship between the individual and the state in relation to a violation of any of the rights set forth in the covenant. This stance brings notions of jurisdiction and attribution very close together. The European Court of Human Rights, on the other hand, maintains a position where a mere possibility to attribute um, acts of the state um, conducted extraterritorially does not necessarily mean that this state is exercising its jurisdiction. The most rigorous form of this approach can be found in the decision of the European Court of Human Rights on the Bankovic and others case, which dealt with the air attack of the TV radio station in Belgrade, uh, which was um, attacked during a military operation of the NATO forces. But this court has steadily moderated its position, but not in all aspects. A question that still remains concerns qualification of military operations in lack of control over the territory. When acts are committed not in the limited space, like a prison or a military base, can a use of force constitute an exercise of control over an individual that meets the threshold of jurisdiction under Article 1 of the Convention for Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms? The answer of this court seems to be rather no. 
But there are at least two decisions of this court that can be regarded with certain reservations as giving an affirmative answer to this question. And I'm speaking first of all about the case Pat and Others versus Turkey of 2007, which concerned a helicopter attack of a group of Iranians by the military forces of Turkey during a counter-terror operation in the border region of Iran. And the second case, which is Jalut versus the Netherlands, which was decided in 2014. In this case, an Iraqi citizen was shot in Iraq at the moment when a car where he was driven as a passenger by approaching the checkpoint at speed hit one of several barrels. At this time, um, at the time of opening the of fire, both members of the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps and the patrol of Netherlands soldiers were present at this checkpoint. In both cases, the European Court of Human Rights found jurisdiction. But the first one was rejected as inadmissible, and I'm speaking about PAD and others versus Turkey, and the second dealt not with ordinary hostilities, but with control over persons at checkpoint. Well, the second limitation of integration between norms of international humanitarian law and international human rights law arises from the scope of application of human rights treaties, ratione persone. Under main international human rights treaties, um, only states are considered to be addressees and holders of human rights obligations. It means that in armed conflicts only governmental side or governmental sides are bound by international human rights treaties. Nonetheless, this fa fact does not hinder application of international human rights provisions in form of international customs. During the last 15 years, the practice of main United Nations bodies, including the Security Council and the General Assembly, faced significant changes in this respect. As these bodies have started to highlight a necessity for non-governmental sides of armed conflicts to respect not only international humanitarian law, but also international human rights law. Moreover, these bodies started to condemn such violations. International human rights law provisions can be also find, found in different agreements concluded by parties of non-international armed conflicts. So that all proves that the personal scope of application of international human rights law um, has been expanded by means of crystallization of a new international custom, imposing obligations to respect human rights norms on non-state parties to the conflict. In conclusion, it can be stated that integration of norms of international human rights law and international humanitarian law allows to raise the threshold of legal protection in armed conflicts. It happens without revision of international treaties, due to the changes of the vector of their interpretation and crystallization of new customary rules of international law. This signifies a new stage of development of international legal framework governing armed conflicts. I thank you very much for your attention.